Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Justin Ongchen. And I'm Nathaniel Worley. Today, we're sitting down with professor, author, gallbladder expert, and so many other titles, we'll just say polymath, Jared Diamond, professor of geography at the University of California, Los Angeles. He began his scientific career in physiology and expanded into evolutionary biology and biogeography. He's been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Society. Among his many awards are the National Medal of Science, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, Japan's Cosmo Prize, a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, and the Lewis Thomas Prize honoring the scientist as poet, presented by Rockefeller University. He has published more than 600 articles, and his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Professor Diamond, thank you so much for joining us today. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I was just curious how um, you made the jump from physiology to evolutionary biology and biogeography and why you made it and how that kind of influenced the trajectory of your career. The jump from physiology to evolutionary biology was easy and it wasn't a jump, but it was an addition. I had become a bird watcher, an amateur bird watcher, when I was seven years old. But when I went to college, ecology was not an exciting subject. It never occurred to me to go into ornithology. Instead, because my father was a physician, when I was growing up and people asked me, what are you going to do? I always said, I'll be a doctor like my father. It was only in my senior year of college, when I had already applied to and gotten into medical school, that I realized I did not want to be a doctor. But instead, I did the next most related thing. I did laboratory medical research, um, which meant going to Cambridge, England for four years and, and becoming world expert on the gallbladder. But then when I came back to, to Harvard as a postdoctoral fellow, to devote the rest of my life to the gallbladder felt limiting. There were lots of other things that I was interested in, including birds. And so a friend, college classmate, and I took a trip first to Peru to watch birds and then to New Guinea to watch birds. And that launched my second parallel career in ornithology. Um, in brief then, it's not that I switched from physiology to evolutionary biology, but to physiology, I added on evolutionary biology, and I still do bird work evolutionary biology today. And to go back to that that point you just made about um, your travel to Peru and New Guinea, um, I mean, I'm a, a junior in college right now, so is Justin, um, and study abroad is an opportunity that most college students have um, access to for the first time, going abroad, studying, all of that. But um, I'm curious, your kind of your take on the influence of study abroad on studies and if you think it's, if, if students have the opportunity, if it is an essential thing that they should be doing. Gosh, essential. There are more essential things in life, such as getting enough food and having a place to, to sleep. Um, but if you have the options and if you can indulge in some luxuries, um, traveling in general, traveling to other places in the United States and then traveling overseas, you'll encounter different people with different attitudes, different problems, different solutions, different languages. Um, it's fun and it's interesting and it's, it's broadening, but broadening sounds as if I'm saying it's good for you. The reason to do it is not that it's good for you, but that you love it. 
hopefully you love it. That makes sense. Thank, thanks for sharing. And for me personally, I'm, I'm just incred- incredibly interested in, in traveling and not only just seeing um, different places and, and their cultures, but also thinking through the history and of the world and how boundaries and maps and have, have been all withdrawn, have been, not withdrawn, sorry, uh, drawn up. And I was wondering um, if you believe that um, these, these current boundaries are are going to stay static or are going to be become more dynamic in the, in the next few years due to current events? There are boundaries that have changed um, in, in my lifetime. Um, there are quite a few boundaries that changed after World War II. Germany lost its eastern provinces after World War II, its eastern states after World War II. Um, Czechoslovakia was a country. It's now two separate countries. Yugoslavia was a unified country. It's now about six countries. The Ukraine and Russia, there are well-known border shifts um, there. Um, So there are shifts in in borders. It's been rather mild, though, compared to the shifts in borders in the 19th century at a time when Germany and Italy were not yet unified. So that makes sense. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you about um, your approach to academic writing for the public versus for other professors, for um, academia in general. Um, kind of how you approach generalist, generalist writing versus specialist writing and what type of distinction you think there is. Also, in terms of actually making it approachable for a lot of people, um, I I believe you've talked in the past about um, trying to get these ideas, these concepts, and um, information about different sh- uh, different subjects to as many people as possible. Um, your book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, is read by college students across the country, um, high school students, even some middle school students. Um, and in terms of kind of getting these ideas across to as many people as possible, are there certain things you think you have to exclude or other things you, you decide to include because of that? Interesting question. Are there things that, that, that I exclude? Usually not, but here is one thing that I did exclude. In my book, um, The World Until Yesterday, which is about traditional societies around the world and how they differ from modern industrial societies, there are differences. There are differences in bringing up children, there are differences in old age, there are differences in relationship between men and women, et cetera, et cetera. And I originally intended to have a chapter on differences in the role and treatment of women between traditional societies and modern societies. All of my books I try out on my UCLA students. And that book I tried out for several years. I had a lecture on the status and role of women in societies around the world. And what I discovered was that the women students in my class, they were just so upset, they they didn't want to believe how badly most traditional societies treat women. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't want to believe it, they wanted to idealize the treatment of women in traditional society. But the fact is that in New Guinea and in most traditional societies, um, women and men don't get to, to pick their mates. That's arranged by the clan. And in New Guinea, women are bought 
traditionally they were bought. The going price when I arrived there was was four pigs. Um, so uh, w- women are treated badly, and of course there's inequality in modern American society, but it's not as bad as as traditional societies. And the result was that my intention of having a chapter in my book about the role of women, I eventually concluded it is just so upsetting, I'm deleting that chapter. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's not something I'd, I'd typically think about, but I guess uh, kind of removing some information like that does, I guess, have to occur um, sometimes when you're trying to reach as many people as possible with the rest of the information. Right, right. And, you know, being a polymath and having to, you know, sift through information, analyze information, are there any kind of like mental models or that you use from other disciplines when you're trying to solve a particular problem, maybe in a different discipline? Yes, in understanding human societies. Uh, So my PhD, my doctoral research, was on salt and water transport in the gallbladder, and I did experiments. I took gallbladders from fish, and I dipped them in solutions with potassium or without potassium. Mm-hmm. I manipulated the gallbladder. They were controlled, manipulative experiments, which is what you do in the laboratory. And every physicist, chemist, and molecular biologist is taught to do a manipulative, controlled experiment. Well, it is not nice. It is immoral. It is illegal. It is impossible to do those experiments on humans. Um, if you if you wanted to understand the effect of some particular way of bringing up children, you could do a manipulative experiment by taking a batch of children and exposing them and bringing them up in a certain way for four years, and then twenty years later. Use, but that's illegal, and it's it's impractical. But with birds, too, studying birds in the jungle, um, it's illegal to go around exterminating. If I could exterminate a population of a warbler and then see the effect on some other warbler, I would have a quick answer to, does warbler number one compete with warbler number two? Mm-hmm. But it's not nice, and it's illegal, and it's, in, it's very difficult to, to go around exterminating birds. I had to f- figure out other ways of doing it. And the other method is the, the so-called natural experiment, namely to look for a mountain where one of those warblers happens to be absent, mm-hmm. and then look at the behavior and the abundance of the other warbler. And similarly with, with people, um, we cannot manipulate people, but there are lots of, there are thousands of human societies that do different things. And so the principle of the natural experiment that I learned from my work on birds is also the method that I use in approaching human societies. I'm not permitted to manipulate human societies, but I can look for experiments that nature has set up. And, you know, that makes me think about um, the application of technology in this regard as well. Um, We have a speaker coming to the ATH in just maybe a week or two. Um, I'm forgetting his name now, unfortunately, but um, he's the founding director of the Robert Day Science Center, which uh, we'll be breaking ground for soon on campus. And his talk is going to be about um, Darwinism and technology, um, computer science, using technology as a, as a way to kind of, um, I think, see these these like evolutionary changes occurring 
in some computer model or another. Um, but w- what you were just talking about, like being able to, I, I suppose, like kill off a warbler to see how it affects um, like the rest of the ecosystem or its relations with other warblers, perhaps. Um, I think technology, perhaps, in, in the coming years could provide perhaps not a full, fully backed like evidence of anything, but um, it, it certainly is interesting and promising um, what it could provide. But um, there was an anecdote I, I read about you not being perhaps the biggest fan of technology. And just kind of talking about that now, um, I don't want to necessarily say that you're not a fan of technology, but um, I was curious in the classroom today, I think technology is, it definitely has a huge part, um, whether it's uploading assignments online or watching videos in class that are projected. So I was curious how you approach that as a professor at UCLA, how you use technology with your students. As little as possible. <laughs> the, the problem, it's not that I deny the value of technology. Yeah. I collaborate with other scientists um, who are very good with technology, and they can come to conclusions that there's no way that I could come to because they're good with technology. But I'm just not good with my hands. When, when in high school, we were all given the, ta- the task of building a simple radio, I couldn't build a simple radio, I had to get someone else to build it for me. I'm just not good with with technology. Um, and um, I did not have a cell phone until about five years ago. My wife, Marie, rarely gets angry at me, but she got angry at me once at, at an, an airport where I had gone through security and she hadn't. She Because I didn't have a cell phone, she couldn't reach me. She said, Jared, get a cell phone. <laughs> and my son Joshua said, Daddy, get a cell phone. So the two of them got me a cell phone. I, I've now learned to use my cell phone. I can make phone calls with it. I can take off my emails. Mm-hmm. I can send emails. I cannot take pictures. I'm told that my, my phone, it's an iPhone, and, a, and my son has shown me that he can take pictures with my iPhone. I can't take pictures. There are all sorts of things called apps. You can download Wikipedia and so on. I can't do that. All I can do is telephone and, and send and receive emails. So in short, it's an, I recognize that there are things that can be done with technology that I'm incapable of doing. It's, it's just that I'm not the person who's going to do those things. Sometimes a phone call and, and some text messages, messages is all you need. Um, well, congratulations on your most recent book, Upheaval. I was, I was wondering if you could tell uh, the, our viewers a little bit about its main thesis and maybe some of its core points that you believe are not being talked about enough contemporarily. Sure. The the thesis of upheaval um, is that the book is about national crises. Every country goes through national crises. The United States, realistically, is is going through an internal political crisis now. Ukraine is going through a military crisis. National crises are, are common, and some countries deal with them well, and some countries deal with them unsuccessfully. But People also go through crises. Um, we go through crises because 
your mother or father or brother died or got sick, or because you yourself had a big health problem, or because you, you got fired, or because you didn't succeed, you got expelled. So we go through crises that we as individuals attempt to deal with, and some of us deal with them well and some not well. My wife Marie is a clinical psychologist. One of her specialties is helping people deal with crises. And as Marie talked to me at, at dinner about her observations um, of how people deal better or worse with crises, I realized that similar cons- considerations apply to nations de- dealing with crises. For example, the first step for a person to deal with a crisis is to acknowledge that you have a crisis. So many people deny that they're in a crisis. If you deny it, you're not going to get anywhere. The next step is to accept responsibility, uh, not to say, oh, it's because of that bad bad person and I'm not going to, but, but it's all their fault. Again, you're not going to solve the crisis unless you accept responsibility that you've got to do something about it. But there are countries like the United States, that deny that we are currently in a crisis. And there are countries that deny that the responsibility for dealing with the crisis is themselves. Too many Americans now blame Canada, Mexico, and China for our problems. Well, we are responsible for our worst problems. So my book, Upheaval, is about national crises viewed from the perspective of personal crises. Why do you think the United States, or at least some people in the United States, deny that we are in a crisis? What is, what is the incentive there? Or maybe like just yeah, denial? No, it's a good question, Jeff. Um, this is not something restricted to the United States. Humans, we as individuals, very often our initial reaction to a crisis is to deny that there is a crisis because it's painful and it forces us to do something. Okay, for the United States to recognize that that we are now having severe problems of polarization that threatens to break our society apart. It's painful to acknowledge, and it's very difficult to solve. It's much easier to deny that one is in a crisis. So it, it doesn't surprise me that, that both individuals and nations often deny a crisis. That makes sense. Yeah, and it's a really interesting parallel to be drawn. Um, I mean, I, I had an international relations class last semester, and um, during the class I was thinking just the same thing. A lot of the ideas where... Um, you you think about like it's it's the leader and then kind of the periphery around the leader just you keep expanding but it it does seem like a lot of nations kind of are like people in a way um, and the relations between different nations and even within the nation it seems like they can kind of be I don't know kind of condensed in in some in some way um, but talking about um, crises now um, seemingly the worst crisis of our time is global warming and climate change and humans' impact on it. And the decline of bird populations as well, I thought you, being an, um, an ornithologist, would have perhaps like more concern towards. So um, I was curious, in your, your travels to New Guinea, have you seen yourself like this, this taking place, fewer birds, fewer bird calls that you hear, anything like that? Or if you could just talk more generally about um, climate change and its impact on um, the field of uh, ornithology. Sure. Climate change um, affects birds right here in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
here's an example. Um, so this past week has been, I believe, the hottest week in Los Angeles history. Mm-hmm. I birdwatch several times a week. One of the places that I birdwatch is a reservoir near my house. Mm-hmm. And there are a species of ducks that come into that reservoir in the winter. I'm accustomed to their starting to arrive in August. Mm-hmm. When I went to that house yesterday, there was not a single winter duck that had arrived yet. Why? Presumably because the weather is still warm and the winter ducks haven't arrived. So weather has effects on birds here in California. It has effects on birds in New Guinea because it's getting warmer. That means that climate zones are moving up the mountain. The the top of the mountain is less cool than it used to be. So birds that I found on a mountain in New Guinea in 1965, say, living between four and 5,000 feet. Um, a couple of students went back in 2012, and they found that the that birds, on the average, are shifted their ranges up about 500 feet on the mountain. Those are effects of climate on birds. There are also birds whose population has been clobbered by changes in climate. How are birds' reproductive cycles changing as, as the climate heats up? Is, is there a significant difference? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, there, there are changes. Um, one change is that birds here in, in California, um, they're, they're, start, they're building their nests earlier in the year uh, because, again, the, the conditions that birds used to have to wait till late February for those conditions. Now they encounter those conditions in early January. Mm-hmm. Or con- conversely, morning doves, common birds, they <laughs> around my house. It used to be that morning doves stopped calling around August 8th. Mm-hmm. This year, Morgan, morning doves didn't stop calling until August 26th. Those are examples of the effects of climate on birds. Mm. Yeah, and just talking about other airborne things as well. This is kind of just an anecdote, but um, I mean, the road trips that I would go on um, as a child in Texas, I remember there were always a lot of bugs on the windshield. Now you see maybe one. And um, talking to my parents about it as well, it's they had the same experience, even more when, when they were young. Now, not as many. Um, it's just really devastating the way that... Um, this it's really just destroying the world but um since you you do have a breadth of knowledge what sort of insights do you have on climate change or perhaps like individual or corporation behavior that could be changed and kind of drawing on that as well um you were born in 1937 i believe um changes that you've seen over time in in um, sort of like production, manufacturing, advertising, anything like that, um, even in academia, how climate change has kind of impacted it all? Well, changes in in corporations, um, a major change in corporations in some corporations in the United States in the last 20 years is that um, until 20 years ago, if you'd asked me what I thought of big international corporations, I would have said that they are perhaps the most destructive evil force in society. And in the last 20 years, 
partly because I'm on the board of directors of World Wildlife Fund US, and we work with corporations that are trying to do good things. I've discovered that there are corporations that are trying to do good things. Walmart is an outstanding example. Unilever is another example. Why is a corporation doing environmentally sustainable policies? Two reasons. One, it saves them money. Um, If, for example, instead of your trucks giving you six miles per gallon, you build your trucks with hybrids, electric gas engines, or all electric, and you get space heaters instead of running the engine to heat the whole whole truck. Uh, Walmart saves more than half of the billions of dollars they spend each year on gasoline. So environmentally sustainable policies save money, but also CEOs have children, and um, the children often tell their mother or father, frankly, what the children think of the mother's or father's business. It really impresses a CEO if the CEO's daughter says, Daddy, I hate you. What you're doing is despicable, and I'm not talking to you. That really gets the attention of of CEOs. And and one of the, for example, one of the heads of Walmart now, the son of one of the sons of Sam Sam Walton, um, his motivation for environmental concerns stems partly from the fact that his son is a river guide in Colorado. And he and my friend saw what the condition with rivers are like in, in Colorado. There are so many, uh, so many un- unanswered questions out there. There are so many interesting things. The world is full of billions of interesting things and full of billions of unanswered questions. Um, everybody starts out curious. Um, it's instead that people's curiosity gets throttled. Um, they're told, you gotta, you got to do this, you got to study this, and you can't, you can't pay attention to this. Particularly once you get older, once you get into, into high school and college, you're under pressure to, to specialize right. and to suppress your curiosity. That's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, that is definitely great advice. And well, all of our listeners, we just want to remind you to explore whatever makes you happy if, if you're in college, and I, I think you had this experience as well, don't just take the classes that are going to be in the field that you're trying to pursue. Take art classes, music classes, like you're at college, explore it, have fun, but use it as a way to grow yourself, really. But unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again so much, Professor Diamond. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you. Thank you.